A reading from the second book of Samuel. King David said to Joab and the leaders of the army who were with him, tour all the tribes in Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know their number. Joab then reported to the king the number of people registered. In Israel, 800,000 men fit for military service. In Judah, 500,000. Afterward, however, David regretted having numbered the people and said to the Lord, I have sinned grievously in what I have done. But now, Lord, forgive the guilt of your servant, for I have been very foolish. When David rose in the morning, the Lord had spoken to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, This is what the Lord says. I offer you three alternatives. Choose one of them, and I will and I will inflict it on you. Gad then went to David to inform him. He asked, Do you want a three years famine to come upon your land, or to flee from your enemy three months while he pursues you, or to have a three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what I must reply to him who sent me. David answered Gad, I am in very serious difficulty. Let us fall by the hand of God, for he is most merciful, but let me not fall by the hand of man. Thus David chose the pestilence. Now it was the time of the wheat harvest when the plague broke out among the people. The Lord then sent a pestilence over Israel from morning until the time appointed, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. But when the angel stretched forth his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord regretted the calamity and said to the angel, causing the destruction among the people, Enough now, stay your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking the people, he said to the Lord, It is I who have sinned. It is I, the shepherd, who have done wrong. But these are sheep. What have they done? Punish me and my kindred. The word of the Lord. Lord, forgive the wrong I have done. Lord, forgive the wrong I have done. Blessed is he whose fault is taken away, whose sin is covered. Blessed the man to whom the Lord imputes not guilt, in whose spirit there is no guile. Lord, forgive the wrong I have done. Then I acknowledge my sin to you, my guilt I covered not. I said, I confess my faults to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. Lord, forgive the wrong I have done. For this shall every faithful man pray to you in time of stress. Through, though deep waters overflow, they shall not reach him. Lord, forgive the wrong I have done. You are my shelter from distress. You will preserve me. With glad cries of freedom, you will ring, around, ring me around. Lord, forgive the wrong I have done.
Dominus Vobiscum. Lectio Sancti Evangelii Secundum Marcum. Jesus departed from there and came to his native place, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. They said, where did this man get all this? What kind of wisdom has been given him? What mighty deeds are wrought by his hands? Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his native place and among his own kin and in his own house. So he was not able to perform any mighty deed there, apart from curing a few sick people by laying his hands on them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Verbum Domini. Just to take care of a problem that we oftentimes hear about, uh, people who want to reduce Our Lady and as to having a minimal role, uh, will say, well, see, she had all these other kids after Jesus. And these are Jesus' brothers and sisters. There's a problem with that. And if you read your Bible, you'll know the problem. These same brothers of Jesus are mentioned again in chapter 15, verse 40. But they're the sons of a woman named Mary, not the mother of Jesus, who's standing at the cross. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, was standing there. It's also mentioned the same thing in um, the Gospel of St. Matthew. The brothers are named both here in Nazareth and as the mother of, uh, the sons of a woman named Mary standing at the cross. And in John 19, verse 25, she is called the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So her sister, now wait a minute, why why are there two girls named Mary in the same family? Well, that's not hard to figure out because her husband is Clopas, right? So the brothers of Jesus are the children of Clopas and another Mary, and Clopas, is described to us by uh, St. Jude, the Apostle Judas, uh, the, the patron saint of hopeless cases. His grandson said that Clopas was St. Joseph's brother. So these are the in-laws. Clopas was Joseph's brother, and Mary was the sister-in-law. So, and their children are, there's no word for cousin 
in Aramaic. So they just called them brothers. It's not unusual. So that's who that is. Just clear that out of the way. And read your Bible more carefully next time. But uh, more important is that knowing the family, knowing that Jesus had been the carpenter, and again, another argument, some people say, well, tecton means someone who works on stone. They worked in stone and they work in trees too. I mean, this is part of life. There's a lot more rock in Israel than there is wood. So of course they use stone. But you know, the, by calling him the carpenter, while it's interesting in, in Matthew 13, he's the son of the carpenter. All that indicates is that Jesus learned St. Joseph's trade. That's not unusual in uh, these kind of village societies. Nazareth was maybe 200 people. You know, so it's, it's not a big town. And, you know, you say, wait a minute, he made my chair. He made the table over here. You know, things like that. So they would use their knowledge of Jesus and the relationships as a way to avoid making acts of faith. That's the real issue. And that they wouldn't believe in him. They, they say in a rhetorical kind of question, where did this man get all this? What kind of wisdom has been given him? It's a rhetorical question. Instead of saying, yeah, wait a minute, where did he get this? Because answering where that wisdom comes from to be able to say the things he does and do the miracles he does, being able to answer that might lead you to an act of faith in him. You would have to make that kind of decision. And they use rhetoric to avoid faith. Now, one of the things that we should remember, I think, is that this is not just a problem of the people of Nazareth. Now, in fact, it, by the second century, by, but later in the first century, um, we see one of the oldest baptistries known as a baptistry at the house of the Annunciation, House of Our Lady. And there's another one over uh, in the house next door that they said it belonged to St. Joseph because they lived in caves. That's another thing. Our Lord was a caveman. Not only was he born in one in uh, Bethlehem, but people lived in caves and you can still see them. You know, they're, they're still there. They uncovered them when they built the new basilica. And, you know, the, it seems that the people of Nazareth eventually did come to faith and were Christians. And we see that fairly early. That's one of the reasons that the Romans didn't destroy them when they attacked Israel in the Jewish revolt of 66. They avoided Nazareth because they weren't part of the revolt. They'd remembered what Jesus had said about the coming dangers. 
and they stayed out of it. The Christians throughout uh, stayed away from the revolt. They didn't take part in it. And one of the key things for us is, again, not just focusing on their lack of faith, but seeing our own culture as a culture of Nazareth. It's a Nazareth culture. Our Western culture is built on Christianity. It was the Benedictine monks who evangelized all over Europe. When those of us who are from European background can look back on our ancestors running around, destroying things, cutting off heads, robbing, raping, and pillaging. And it was the Benedictine monks, many of them coming from Ireland and especially England, to evangelize the continent. And from those monasteries came many of the uh, cities of Europe. After the barbarians had destroyed them, new cities came from the monasteries. It's what Munich means. Its Latin name is Monachium, monastery. Salzburg is built around a monastery of Benedictine sisters, and it's all over Europe. They, our culture goes back to Christian roots, and what we see is this rejection of Christianity that has been going on, not just now, we see this very clearly in the 18th century forward. And pay attention to this. As Western society has rejected its Christian origins, has become a society of Nazarenes in this sense, that they use their knowledge of Christianity, oh, the church did this and all, we know what they're like, and, you know, they use that kind of rhetoric, not at all unlike the rhetoric here, and talk away the miracles. Well, Jesus didn't really multiply loaves and fish, which we'll be hearing about, uh, I think, tomorrow. But he just got everybody to share their bread. They, they come up with these explanations to undo the miraculous and to make the teachings of Christ irrelevant. And what do they replace it with? When they overthrow the church, they'll bring about people like Napoleon Bonaparte and Maximilien Robespierre, who go around smiting Europe with death. When they reject Christianity, they create a culture of death. Robespierre committed the first genocide of modern European history by killing 200,000 people who were committed to their Catholic faith in Western France. Napoleon Bonaparte's war was one of the worst wars in European history up to that point, with more people dying in his wars than had died in all the Christian wars prior to that, combined. 
And then we see as the, they bring about nationalism and industrialization, industrialization oftentimes used by the states not to develop wealth and prosperity, but to use the workers, semi-enslave them, and they do that to create industrial wealth to promote their military and to be able to do wars that were far more devastating. The Civil War in the United States, more people died then than in 250 years of all the Crusades because of the industrialization. World War II was 25 million. World War, excuse me, World War I was 25 million. World War II was over 50 million, about 55. And we see how the replacement of nationalistic governments or national socialism and communism had led to the devastation of 305 million people dying in war and genocide in the 20th century. 40 million martyrs, all this. This is what happens when they stay with the superficiality of rhetorical questions. Well, what does the church ever do? Well, let me see. It civilizes the barbarians that came to Europe. You overthrow Christ, you dismiss him and make him rhetorical, and you go back to a barbarity worse than anything your ancestors had imagined. That's the reality. And we shouldn't think that it's any different now, as we see that people want to get political office over the blood of innocent children in the womb. Do you think that's an improvement? That's a rejection of Christ. We see how the rejection of Christ leads, led to slavery, denying the dignity of people. And well, business and having a plantation, that's, you don't understand. We you know, can't let Christianity get in the way of taking slaves. We, we need the workers because we can't get it done. When we put Christ behind and use rhetoric to overthrow him, society declines. And in some ways, that relates to our feast today of St. John Bosco. He was born in a village. And Italy was in the throes of these kind of rejections of Christ through his whole ministry and youth. Napoleon had devastated much of Italy in his wars. Industrialization was destroying families. And he came across so many kids playing, you know, on their own, playing in the marketplaces and stuff because they had no family taking care of them and they became rough and mean. He used his skills. He used to hunt for birds, sell the birds, and go to magic and juggling shows to learn how to do juggling. As a priest, he would juggle on the town square, fascinate people, and then preach the gospel and teach the catechism as he juggled. 
He would do that and then gathered a community the, called the Salesians, one of the largest orders in the church, to help train these boys and prevent them from going down that path of being people of Nazareth that reject Jesus. Instead, help them to come to know Christ. And we ourselves, in the face of the change in culture, have to be alert that our culture is trying to be and is succeeding in many ways at rejecting Christ and then rejecting family, family breakdown. All these things are a result. Not treating marriage as something that is a lifelong commitment where a man and a woman raise their children, love their children and each other. All these things are breaking down. And in the face of that, to call our society to recognize what Jesus had done and still can do to transform us. Coming back to him will make us a better people. He will transform us into his saints. Society without him will destroy us. The government without Christ will be destructive, as we see in history and with risks still there for mass destruction with big weapons. No, no, no. We seek Jesus Christ, and we will not let our past knowledge of him become rhetorical so as to dismiss him, but rather see this as a call to even greater faith in him. This is the call of today's gospel.